This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. Elliot, let's talk a little about this Penn State. I mean, more and more keeps coming out. First, it was one person. Then it's up to eight people. Now I'm hearing maybe 20. Now I'm hearing that they might have been selling these kids off to alumni. I mean, this is getting crazy. It, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And the path- sad, pathetic part of it is it could have been stopped a long time ago, and it should have been stopped a long time ago. Turning a blind eye to this, I don't... I understand it's a very complicated situation, and you had long-time relationships, but there's a point at which you say, this is wrong. And to go for Joe Paterno to go to school officials and say, this is what I've been told, and for that to just go away, that doesn't undo what happened or what allegedly happened, what the grand, the 23-page grand jury report says happened. I mean, uh, in 98, when they first got wind, you stop it there. You basically, you report it to the authorities. You say, you're done. Right. You're fired, and then end it there. Don't let the guy keep working, and then... Well, even if, you know, and they got rid of him, and he was gone by 99, but he was still allowed to come back to, to the Penn State facilities. Exactly. It, it, it makes no sense. Right, and then he let the kids be there. He had an office there. He could work out. He was there last week. I right. mean, end it. And and people say, oh, what a wonderful person Joe Paterno is. The fact is, if you turn a blind eye or if you don't follow through with law enforcement authorities on something like this, you set the, the bar for what you're willing to put up with. And if you're willing to put up with child sex abuse, then, okay, God knows what else you'll turn a blind eye to. Oh, exactly. And they say, well, he probably didn't know. He had complete control over that well, program. He, if he didn't know, it's because he didn't want to know. Right. It, it's not because people were shielding stuff from him. He wanted to be isolated, just like government officials and, uh, you know, high-ranking business people just don't want to know. So when somebody comes to him and say, were you aware of this or that, they're able to say, oh, no, and they may be technically accurate about that, but... Did uh, we go through this with George Ryan here? He wasn't yeah. involved in selling the licenses, and right. they said you should have known. Yeah. And he went down, and he's in federal prison because of that. Yeah. You have to wonder where the moral campus was with Joe Paterno. You have to wonder where it was with Mike McQuarrie, who was a 28-year-old graduate assistant when he saw Jerry Sandusky allegedly... Uh, having sex with a, about okay. a 10-year-old as a grand jury reporter. So he sees it in 02 going on. He reports it to his supervisor, Paterno. Basically, the next day, they bring it up. And then the following year, he's an assistant coach for Penn State. Those jobs are impossible to get Division One coaching jobs, especially in a place like Penn State. And then all of a sudden, it looks even if he got the job in his credentials, it looks like they paid him to shut him up. Well, and, and you have to think that McQuarrie, who was 28, calls his father. Okay, I can understand that part. But then to just sort of sit on all this makes no sense. And I'm sure McQuarrie was thinking, gee, if if I say something, I'm not going to get a job. And now he's in the position of I can't imagine anybody that would hire him in in the wake of all this at Penn State. Let's get to some happier thoughts. The Bears are playing the Lions this Sunday. And on the phone, we've got 
a person who got was in 10 Pro Bowls with the Lions. He went on to coach him. He was their winningest coach up until this point. Joe Schmidt, how you doing, Joe? Hey, good afternoon. How are you? Good. Hey. What do you think about those Lions here? I mean, they're coming back from the dead for like 10 well, years. Well, i so happy about that. I'm happy for the coach, especially he seems like a, I don't know him well, but he's a very thorough coach. Uh, Great coach, I, I I believe. I think that this uh, season will prove me right. I think that they have a possibility of winning maybe uh, nine, ten ball games. Uh, you know, the difference in their ball ga- uh, team is the quarterback, uh, the outside receiver, uh, Calvin Johnson, and the defense is playing a little bit better. So they have some guys that can uh, play, and uh, of course that makes big uh, good coaches when you have guys that can play. You know. <laughs> So I, I look uh, for them to do uh, and continue, uh, uh, you know, with their winning streak, uh, so to speak. Um, of course, they play the Bears, don't they? That's that's, uh, yeah. that's uh, going to be a, a difficult game. I watched the Bears the other night, and they look much improved, and uh, their defense is playing well, and the offense is playing well. So I think it's going to be a good game. And on the defensive side of the ball, the Lions aren't too shabby either. No, they, uh, you know, uh, uh, defensive tackles uh, have improved. Uh, especially the defensive line is much improved. And uh, there's some weakness in, the, in, in some of the linebackers and the secondary. But uh, uh, with that good the defensive line and good rush, they've been able to uh, um, have, uh, they've uh, you know, helped that secondary quite a bit. It's been a long time since Detroit's won a championship in football. Back when you were playing, what, 58, 57? 57. Uh, 57, yeah. Uh, that's, that is a long time. <laughs> Funny how time you're, you're, flies. Uh, you're, you're reminding me of my age. <laughs> hey, you're, you, if they ask you, you'd still be able to come out for a few downs and play well, little linebacker I, I for them, right? So. But uh, we always, you know, look forward to playing the Bears. I uh, got to know uh, uh, some of those guys back then, uh, you know, Rick Caceres and uh, Bill George. Uh, uh, we're good friends of mine. I really enjoyed playing against those guys, and uh, they were good guys. Uh, you know, good good football players and uh, great individuals. Now, when you came into the NFL as a seventh round pick, you must have wondered what what took them so long to draft me. And then you find yourself on a world championship team as a rookie. Well, I was disappointed, uh, um, not from the standpoint of you know coming to Detroit, but I didn't really. Uh, think I had much of a chance to make a championship team. They just you know, won the championship the year before. And uh, I really wanted to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And uh, they had told me uh, through the grapevine that they were going to draft me. So uh, I was uh, planning on being a Pittsburgh Steeler. And uh, I, you know, I come from Pittsburgh. That's where I went to school. And uh, I was all excited about uh, the possibility of being a Pittsburgh Steeler. But uh, as I listened to the draft on the radio at that particular time, uh, you know, the rounds went by and uh, eventually uh, the Lions drafted me. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll at least go up there and give it a shot and see what happens. So, But uh, everything turned out for the best. Uh, I you know, played on some great teams and with some great football players. And uh, I've had an extremely uh, exciting life here in Detroit. I was going to say, if you ended up with the Steelers, you would have ended up on some awfully bad teams, wouldn't you? At that time, yes. <laughs> but, uh, again, uh, I had an older brother who played for the Steelers. Uh, he played at uh, well, it was Carnegie Tech uh, uh, in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, 
year before you had to go to the, the, the service, uh, you know, during that time. And uh, so I, I always felt that uh, I, that's where I belonged, and uh, that's my hometown, and I was anxious to play uh, professional football naturally, and especially in my, my hometown. I know Pittsburgh and uh, Pennsylvania in general is known for their quarterbacks. I mean, you've had Montana, Marino. It's like a breeding ground. Well, you take, uh, again, uh, like, a, I don't know if you've been to Pittsburgh, uh, uh, the point where the uh, two rivers, Allegheny and Monongahela, join the Ohio, and you go down the Ohio River, and you take a radius of about 30 miles within that uh, point there, and you have some great football players. You know, you have Montana, you have John Unitas lived about, uh, about a mile and a half from where I grew up. Uh, you have Mike Ditka, you have Tony Dorsett, you have Marino, uh, and, and uh, there's Kelly, you know, who played uh, for, I guess, Buffalo. Right. Uh, you know, so there's, uh, of course, uh, uh, Big Joe. Uh, um, uh, so there are quite a few Hall of Famers within that area, and I would, I would say there's probably, guys that uh, are from Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, that are in the NFL Hall of Fame. Now, what running back uh, gave you the most trouble? Oh, well, uh, um, I, I don't necessarily uh, gave us the most trouble. You know, sometimes uh, um, the ones that I played against, I, I you know, there's a whole guys of course you know the, the one Jim Brown naturally we played uh, the Browns quite uh, frequently uh, and, uh, and I, I always look at Rick Caceres as a great football player from the Bears uh, um, uh, we had uh, 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 Hugh McElhaney, Joe Perry you know uh, just to mention some of those guys but uh, they, you know during that time with the 12 teams uh, most teams had uh, you know, pretty good running backs, and at least one who was uh, uh, pretty damn good. And uh, the guys I mentioned uh, always gave everybody trouble. What was it like going against, in practice, Bobby Lane? I mean, I've heard stories of Bobby Lane basically from uh, Art Donovan saying, you know what, I'd tackle him during a game, I'd smell the alcohol, and I'd say, Bobby, I could smell <laughs> it from last night. And he goes, I was drinking at halftime. Is that Art being Art, or was that true? No, that's, uh, <laughs> that's just Art being Art. Uh yeah, you know, Bobby gets credit for a lot of things that uh, it really never transpired. I, you know, there's there's all kinds of stories about him, and I, I, I don't want to paint him as a, you know, as a, as a, as a choir boy or anything of that nature. But uh, you know, he, he liked to go out and uh, have a good time. Uh, but when he stepped on a football field in practice and, uh, and in the game, he was all business, and uh, you know, he uh, he enjoyed himself, and uh, he'd always you know drag a couple guys around uh, with him and. Uh, uh, in a few places, and uh, that was uh, his mentality. And uh, but you know, um, in spite of that, he was always prepared to play. He always knew what he had to do. He uh, and uh, he always played up to uh, expectations. Uh, you know, like everybody else, he's had had bad games naturally. But uh, he uh, he set the pace for everybody. He wanted everybody to, to play to the maximum. And uh, if he didn't play well, I, I know a couple times. Uh, during the course of his career where he would, you know, maybe somebody wasn't blocking properly and he'd, in the offensive line, he'd stop the game, go over and tell the coach, uh, Parker, he says, uh, you know, 
get so-and-so the hell out of the game. He says, uh, you know, he's not playing. And, uh, of course, at that particular time, we only had 33 guys on the team, so we, we, we didn't have the luxury of saying, you know, take some guy out and put another guy in. And, uh, and he said, you know, if he keeps up and not blocking, he says, I'm giving the hell out. I'm not playing. <laughs> but, you know, be that what it is, uh, you know, he expected uh, everybody to perform properly. And, uh, and in most cases, uh, that's the way it was. What was it like being in the defensive huddle with Alex Karras? Oh, Alex uh, was kind of quiet in the, in the, in the huddle. He, uh, um, oh yeah, once in a while, you know, he'd uh, say something. But in, in most cases, too, he was a uh, uh, Alex wasn't much of a practice player. He was all uh, uh, you know a, a game player, and uh, uh, he could play. I mean, he's uh, as good as. Uh, in my estimation, he should be in the Hall of Fame, but uh, he had some problems there with uh, gambling and so forth. I think that's the thing is keeping him out of the Hall of Fame. Uh, Alex had very quick hands and quick feet and very strong, and uh, when he wanted to play, uh, you know, I don't think there were too many guys at that time could block him. I see that uh, they started experimenting with the uh, radios and the headsets when you were playing, and you had a little problem with it the one game. Well, uh, that was something that, uh, you know, was uh, new. Uh, uh, they had a situation where they had a receiver in the helmet, and uh, my defensive coach would call uh, the uh, plays in. And, uh, you know, a lot of times he would take his time, and, uh, you know, uh, the offensive team would be coming up to the line of scrimmage, and I had to get the, play, the defense out, so I would call it myself. And uh, uh, he would get a little upset about that once in a while, but, uh, you know, he had to do his job, and I had to do my job. And if uh, it wasn't in there on time, I had to, you know, do what I thought was best. And uh, we got in a few, you know, contests about that a little bit. And uh, But it was, uh, you know, something that they were experimenting with, and uh, it... Uh, I would prefer to call my own defenses, but, uh, you know, he felt that it was necessary for him to be involved in it, so I had to go along with it. What was the transition like going from player to coach? Well, you know, it's kind of difficult, to tell you the truth. I only uh, had, like, uh, six months on the staff uh, prior to becoming head coach, and uh, it was just like, you know, one year I'm playing, and next year I'm coach, so... Everybody I coached or everybody was on the teams that I played with, and uh, naturally they're, they're uh, good teammates, good friends, and at, uh, at times it was difficult, at times it, uh, where I had to make some uh, adjustments and cut some, uh, you know, teammates uh, that, uh, you know, we had rookies coming in that I had to replace them, and it was uh, difficult from that standpoint, and, uh, you know, Everybody yeah, was watching you naturally uh, at all times, so it was uh, a little, little, little touch and go at times. But uh, I think we uh, were able to handle it. Uh, it got a little tight at times, but uh, of course, uh, when you're coaching, uh, uh, everything doesn't go proper properly, and uh, so you have to make adjustments accordingly. When you were coaching, I mean, people. Always talk about someone's going to get killed during an NFL game, but someone actually did die during the game. Chuck Hughes, when you were coaching, what was that like? Well, Charlie, was, you know, unfortunately at that time, uh, the physicals and things of that nature were not uh, adequate uh, 
and they didn't uh, do the extensive testing and so forth that they do today. And uh, his whole family had uh, some uh, genital, uh, congenital uh, heart uh, problems, and uh, that wasn't really established uh, when you know he was getting the physical. And uh, and nobody, of course, he kept it quiet. Uh, actually, um, and uh, of course, it was against the Bears, and he was always on the. Uh, he he wasn't a starter, but he, he was always walking next to me, and he always, you know, the coach put me in. And so we were we were losing it there in Tiger Stadium uh, against the Bears, and uh, I said, okay, it was toward the end of the close toward the end of the game, or yeah, I guess it was uh, the end of the game, and uh, I got him a pass pattern, and he ran down the field, and it was uh, like a go, uh, you know, long pass pattern, and. Uh, uh, he came back, and then he ran another one, and he came back, and he dropped over, and he was, uh, he died right there on the field. So it was uh, uh, quite an experience, uh, naturally, for the whole team and, and uh, the whole organization and, uh, of course, his family. And uh, uh, it was difficult to move on. It was, uh, you know, you regardless of what you say and how you say it, uh, and how you put it, uh, it's uh, never, in my mind, was never adequate. And uh, uh, even today, uh, you know, I think about that uh, every football season and uh, think about his family and think about uh, his young child. I think he had a son who uh, was uh, just, uh, you know, like eight, ten months old. And... Uh, uh, it's uh, difficult to, you know, erase that from your mind, and uh, it's an unfortunate thing. But uh, I guess those things things happen uh, in life, and uh, but it, it uh, sort of naturally put a damper on our season that year, and it was difficult to, uh, you know, continue on. We had to go down uh, naturally to his hometown. It was in Texas, uh, uh, El Paso, I think. Whole team flew down and, and uh, went to the services and so forth, and they came back. And so uh, it's difficult to get a team back to where they should be thinking about a game uh, when something, you know, that drastic happens. Uh, but uh, he'll forever be in my my prayers. And uh, yeah, I guess you got to keep keep moving on. And I think because of his unfortunate death, that uh, there were a lot of things that the National Football League took it. Uh, look at it and said, well, uh, you know, there should be an ambulance on the on the field at all times. Uh, there should be certain things that uh, weren't in place at that particular time uh, that may have, you know, helped him uh, get through that. But uh, for reasons uh, that's never been established, that is, you know, prior to that, uh, we never had uh, things that I mentioned uh, close to the field or even thought about anything that like that happening. But uh, uh, the National Football League now, I think, requires everybody to have an ambulance, which is, uh, you know, adjacent to the, the field or near near the field. And uh, in most cases, uh, everybody has uh, adequate physician, physicians and so forth on the on the field, which is uh, very beneficial to the players. So there are some good things came out of it, but uh, it was mostly bad. Nowadays, they would have grief counseling for the players and the families and the coaches and all that. Anything like that in place back then? No, no, no. I, uh, no, there wasn't. I, I really had to go and make all the, almost the, all the funeral arrangements. Uh, 
I had to go to the funeral home. Uh, I had to prepare a mass uh, in Detroit. Uh, so, um, and I know uh, why it was left to me, but uh, I, uh, I I took it upon myself to do it. Uh, but again, there wasn't anything like like what you mentioned, uh, grief counseling and things of that nature. I think. Uh, um, it was a difficult thing to get over. I I, I don't like to lay that uh, and use that as an excuse uh, on our season, but it, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to overcome. It is. I mean, you did a great job, though, I mean, and I'm glad the NFL basically straightened everything out. Thank you so much for your time, Joe. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I... Uh, Chicago is going to be a tough game. I know they've got a good football team. Should be a fun game. Well, it always is. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, thank you. There was NFL Hall of Famer Joe Schmidt. Let's get to our next guest, former member of the Atlanta Falcons, a multi-time pro bowler from Evanston, Illinois, Mike Ken. How you doing, Mike? Doing well. Good to be on. So why aren't you a Hall of Famer? Well, you know, to be honest with you, uh, since I've Played more losing football games than anyone in the history of the NFL, other than Sean Landetta, who's a punter, and you can't count him. I should be in just out of pure sympathy, by the way. I would think so. Yeah. I, I, you know what? I, they I don't, don't have know. a wing in Canton for that. No, they don't. But you know, it's uh, you know they went to the Super Bowl about three or four years after I retired, and unfortunately, you know, Hall of Famers are. Uh, uh, the team uh, success is taken too much into consideration for an individual honor. Uh, I could even make the argument that it's actually harder to play at a high level with a poor cast of characters around you rather than a good cast of characters. But I don't have a vote in the matter, so I just have to sit by and hope for the best. But if it happens, great. If it doesn't, well, it did. Well, you play with some great offensive linemen, though. I mean, Atlanta was always known for their line. They had you, Jeff Van Note, Bro Freilich. I mean, again, running behind that line had to be a, a thrill for, like, a William Andrews. Yeah, when William was there, we had three bowler, pro bowlers, myself, Jeff Van Note, and R.C. Tailman, and then, uh, you know, we had myself and Bill Freilich, and Chris Hinton was there for a while. We had another line with uh, three pro bowlers on it, so... Uh, you know, during my tenure, we had some pretty damn good offensive lines, not only from a run blocking, but also from a pass blocking standpoint. But, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, we didn't have as many people of, of that caliber overall and didn't win many football games. I mean, I only had uh, four winning seasons in 17 and three were in the first five years. That's when you had what Steve Barkowski is your quarterback. Yeah, Steve, I think, was a rookie in 76, and then um, I was a rookie in 78, and got to the playoffs my rookie year as a wild card, won the division, had the best record in the NFC in 1980 when uh, we lost the Dallas Cowboys in a game we actually had won, and then in 1982, the strike year, almost everybody made the the, uh, the playoffs, but we did too. We had a winning record then, and then it kind of went downhill after that. Was an easy transition to the NFL after playing at Michigan? Well, from a competitive standpoint, it's, uh, there's, there's, that's the largest separation or largest divide that exists. I mean, it's, it's much bigger from between high school and college, and, and it's much bigger from colleges to the NFL because it's, 
percent of the one percent. And I'll be honest with you, when I was in, in college, I maybe played against two or three guys that were really good. Uh, the rest of them were average or below average at best. That's not the case in the NFL, especially playing left tackle. You know, they usually have their best athlete uh, at the rush end position on the right side. So uh, there were no easy days in the NFL. Some were just harder than others because of, like if it was Lawrence Taylor or Bruce Smith or Fred Dean or Richard Dent or Chris Dolman, I mean, I'd go on and on. Who was the toughest guy you went against? You know, day in and day out, the most gifted guy, and he was playing out of a 3-4, and he was a good man, and God rest his soul. A lot of people are kind of shocked when I say this, is um, Leroy Selman. Okay. Leroy was a phenomenal player, uh, really phenomenal, and he was he was quite a gentleman. Uh, we had a lot of battles. We played twice every year because of geographical proximity, even though they weren't in our division. We played them once in the preseason because they were right down there, and we always played them in the regular season for some reason. So I had to play Leroy a lot. <laughs> so what defensive linemen did you hold the most during your career, do you think? I held every one of them within the rules <laughs> of the game. <laughs> okay, who, who, who did you get caught holding the most against? Uh, you know what? I never got called for a lot of penalties. So, uh, you know, I never really, uh, you know, kept a, a, a log book on who I held or didn't held, hold. Uh, but, uh, you know, the rules allow you to play, uh, and, and hold, um, within the rules. And as long as you are a very specific about your hand placement, uh, it's a huge advantage for an offensive lineman. I don't really see a lot of offensive linemen, hardly any offensive linemen, you know, utilizing strict technique. Now, uh, most of the time they're getting themselves in positions of a disadvantage and giving the advantage to the rusher. So. Someone sent me a question and said, did you ever play in a better game than your 3 nothing loss to Nutria in 1973? One of my most disappointing games, probably the greatest game I ever played in was college when we beat Ohio State 22 to nothing in, in Columbus. But uh, that game at New Trier was uh, a really disappointing game. It actually should have ended in a 3-3 tie, and it was in a mud bowl. And, and uh, you know, it was basically three and out in the punt, three and out in the punt. They got a field goal, and we finally got in a position to kick a field goal, and we actually made the field goal, but then... Uh, the umpire who referee that was standing under the goalpost threw a flag and actually called us for a legal procedure because our kicker had his mouthpiece dangling from his face mask instead of in his mouth. Ouch. And then we got uh, penalized five yards, and that was just outside of his distance. They missed it, and we lost three and enough. And so that was a very disappointing game. But it really was not a great contest uh, for either team because of the conditions. Uh, and they had some good football players. One in particular uh, they had was Clay Matthews, by the way. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Was Emery Moorhead on your team or no? Emery is a few years older than I, so uh, I was never on the varsity when he was there. I was in freshman, sophomore, but I know Emery real well, obviously. Um, and, you know, you know, he's a hometown boy, made good there, playing, the, you know, not only for Evanston, but then for the Bears, so... Uh, I was always happy to see that for Emory. Was Joe Stewart on that Evanston team? He was in my class, yeah. Joe was a very gifted guy. Uh, had a lot of speed, you know, and we were a speed team. And uh, I was 
kind of surprised that his NFL career didn't last longer than it did. Uh, and I don't really know the reasons why, but, uh, you know, Joe was a talented of a player that I played with, you know, and uh, it just didn't work out for him, unfortunately. He was a little undersized for running back, so they tried to play him at wide receiver, and maybe that was it. He was kind of in between and, and then really couldn't play either one that well. Because back in those days, you know, running backs had a tendency to be a little bit bigger than 205 pounds. So. And then I see during your career you became president of the NFLPA. How did that happen, and did you enjoy that? Actually, I, I look very fondly upon my time and tenure with the NFLPA, and um, I've always had the personality if, uh, if I'm going to be involved in something, I'd like I'd rather be at the front of the line than uh, sitting on the bench. And so I got involved uh, following actually Jeff Van Notes footsteps, became an alternate rep, player rep, executive committee member, then president. In fact, I was president for the first time that uh, we decided to decertify, and I was actually president when we signed that collective bargaining agreement at, uh, back in, I think, in 92. It actually has my signature on it. So uh, I was involved in two strikes and, you know, a whole lot of contentious meetings for a very long time, but uh, I met a lot of great guys. Um, I have more friends from my days being involved with the NFLPA than I did as an Atlanta Falcon, to be honest with you. What do you make of these labor negotiations, whether it's the NFL or the NBA? It it just seems out of control. No, it's just part of business. I mean, geez, there's uh, labor negotiations in general business and in public business on a regular basis. It's just a part of doing business. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people try to disparage the players saying, and the owners saying it's a bunch of millionaires crying, uh, you know, arguing over money, but... You know, you know, professional careers don't last that long. I was rare. I played till I was almost 40. You know, most of the guys, you know, three and a half years in the NFL, if you get to year five, it's like seven. But most of the guys are done either by the time they're 30 or early 30s. And they, you know, if they didn't, if they weren't uh, watching their money, you know, they didn't make enough money that would live another 50, 60 years till they were 80 or 90 years old. So, uh, you know, they're, they're paid whatever the market bears. And, you know, every NFL team right now is not saying they're not making money. Their argument was they're not making enough. So it's not like basketball or baseball to a certain degree, but it's a funny thing. Every time a basketball team, baseball team, or football team gets sold, it's always at a higher price than the last time somebody purchased it. Yeah, so curious how that works. Yeah. Dave Pear and Carl Eller have been real outspoken about the former players not getting enough in pension benefits. What happened with the last negotiation? Has there been an increase, or no one knows what the retired players got? There's going to be an increase, but nobody knows yet. Uh, they're still in discussions about it. Uh, one of the problems with the Burt Bell uh, Eagles L plan is that um, it was underfunded uh, you know, because of the recent uh, downfall in the market. Uh, it's not funded it. I think that 82% is considered a fully funded pension plan, and we're down in, in the low 70s. So I don't know how much of that money, that $660 million, is going to be used just to go ahead and bring it back into fully funded status, and then how much is that going to be used to increase the pre-94 or pre-92 players' um, so uh, it's been speculated that it'd be a hundred dollar per year of 
uh, accredited uh, season, um, but um, it was supposed to have been done 60 days ago, and it still hasn't been uh, agreed upon. So I'm not sure what's going on, to be honest with you. Did you try to take care of the former players when you were the president of the NFLPA? We did every time. Uh, we, you know, we reached back to the pre-59ers. Uh, we did every time I was president. Was it as much as should have been? No, but it was as much as we could at the time. Uh, there wasn't as much money in the game then as there is today. But you know what people have to uh, realize is that for any additional uh, increase and the retired player's benefit, the modern-day player has to take less. And they probably should. Uh, and they took less in this collective bargaining agreement overall, uh, you know, for some better working conditions. But uh, uh, there definitely needs to be an increase. I, I, I think that moving forward, they need to continue to go ahead and attempt to increase it. But, you know, this is a 10-year agreement, so I don't know if there's going to be an opportunity for them to address it again in the next 10 years. That's a long time. You should have been the commissioner after Gene Upshaw, and I don't understand why they didn't give it to you. I don't, you know, it's, I put my name in the hat. I was honored to, I think, make the top five or four, but uh, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I ran because I'm, I was worried about the, the the legacy of the NFL and, and, the, and the players that it represents, you know, past, present, and future. But, uh, you know, the modern-day players wanted to move in a, in a different direction than myself, and that's their decision. I mean, because the last offensive lineman who ran it was a disaster from what I heard. Well, that's people's opinion, but you know what? Uh, Gene Upshaw did some tremendous things for the NFLPA. When, uh, when I hired him in 1982, uh, we were about, I don't know, three and a half or five and a half million dollars in debt. And, you know, they went into this uh, negotiation with a war chest of about $300 million, and they owned their own building in Washington, D.C. Well, that was quite the turnaround, and that was all all happened under Gene Upshaw's leadership. So uh, a lot of the criticism that is levied at him uh, is not justifiable. Those are former players who just don't understand exactly, you know, where we were, how it happened, and how we got there. Uh, and football players, for a tendency, you know, have to end up being bitter anyway because, um, you know, they never – things never rarely end the way that you want them to in your – professional athletic career. I was one of the few ones that got to choose when I retire. 99% of the guys are told their time is over. It either happens by injury or, hey, you've gotten too old or they found somebody better. And that's always kind of a bitter reality that I have to accept. Uh, and a lot of players just don't accept it, but that's the way it is. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Ken. It was a pleasure talking to you. You too. Y'all be good up there. Oh, we'll try. There was former Atlanta Falcon Mike Ken, another great show today. Former Hall, former Detroit Lion and NFL <laughs> Hall of Famer Joe Schmidt, Mike Ken, and JoJo McCarthy. I want to thank our Salman extraordinary Dave Olson. I want to thank Jerry Lorenzi for getting JoJo McCarthy. Again, I'm David Spit, Elliot Harris. Stay tuned again to Sports and Turds again next week.